The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Chapter 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Edited by Frank Woodworth Pine. Chapter 7. Beginning Business in Philadelphia. We sailed from Gravesend on the 23rd of July, 1726. For the incidents of the voyage, I refer you to my journal, where you will find them all minutely related. Perhaps the most important part of that journal is the plan, to be found in it, which I formed at sea for regulating my future conduct in life. It is the more remarkable as being formed when I was so young, and yet being pretty faithfully adhered to quite through to old age. Footnote. The journal is not found in the manuscript journal, which was left among Franklin's papers. End of footnote. We landed in Philadelphia on the 11th of October, where I found sundry alterations. Keith was no longer governor, being superseded by Mayor Gordon. I met him walking the streets as a common citizen. He seemed a little ashamed at seeing me, but passed without saying anything. I should have been as much ashamed at seeing Miss Reed, had not her friends, despairing with reason of my return after the receipt of my letter, persuaded her to marry another, one Rogers, a potter, which was done in my absence. With him, however, she was never happy, and soon parted from him, refusing to cohabit with him or bear his name, it being now said that he had another wife. He was a worthless fellow, though an excellent workman, which was the temptation to her friends. She got into debt, ran away in 1727 or 1728, went to the West Indies, and died there. Keimer had got a better house, a shop well supplied with stationery, plenty of new types, a number of hands, though none good, and seemed to have great deal of business. Mr. Denham took a store in Water Street, where we opened our goods. I attended the business diligently, studied accounts, and grew in a little time expert at selling. We lodged and boarded together. He counseled me, as a father having a sincere regard for me. I respected and loved him, and we might have gone on together very happy, but in the beginning of February, 1726-1727, when I had just passed my twenty-first year, we both were taken ill. My distemper was a pleurisy, which very nearly carried me off. I suffered a good deal, gave up the point in my own mind, and was rather disappointed when I found myself recovering, regretting in some degree that I must now some time or other have all that disagreeable work to do over again. I forgot what his distemper was. It held him a long time, and at length carried him off. He left me a small legacy in a nuncupative will, as a token for his kindness for me, and he left me once more to the wide world, for the store was taken into the care of his executors, and my employment under him ended. My brother-in-law, Holmes, being now in Philadelphia, advised my return to my business, and Keimer tempted me with an offer of large wages by the year to come and take the management of his printing-house, that he might better attend his stationer's shop. I had heard a bad character of him in London from his wife and her friends, and was not fond of having any more to do with him. I tried for further employment as a merchant's clerk, 
but not readily meeting with any, I closed again with Keimer. I found in his house these hands, Hugh Meredith, a Welsh Pennsylvanian, thirty years of age, bred to country work, honest, sensible, had a great deal of solid observation, was something of a reader, but given to drink. Stephen Potts, a young countryman of full age, bred to the same, of uncommon natural parts, and great wit and humour, but a little idle. These he had agreed with at extreme low wages, per week, to be raised a shilling every three months, as they would deserve by improving in their business, and the expectation of these high wages to come on hereafter was what he had drawn them in with. Meredith was to work at press, pots at bookbinding, which he, by agreement, was to teach them, though he knew neither one nor t'other. John, a wild Irishman, brought up to no business, whose service for four years Keimer had purchased from the captain of a ship. He, too, was to be made a pressman. George Webb, an Oxford scholar, whose time for four years he had likewise bought, intending him for a compositor, of whom more presently, and David Harry, a country boy, whom he had taken apprentice. I soon perceived that the intention of engaging me at wages so much higher than he had been used to give was to have these raw, cheap hands formed through me, and as soon as I had instructed them, then they being all articled to him, he should be able to do without me. I went on, however, very cheerfully, put his printing-house in order, which had been in great confusion, and brought his hands by degree to mind their business and to do it better. It was an odd thing to find an Oxford scholar in the situation of a bought servant. He was not more than eighteen years of age, and gave me this account of himself, that he was born in Gloucester, educated at grammar school there, had been distinguished among the scholars for some apparent superiority in performing his part when they exhibited plays, belonged to the Whitty Club there, and had written some pieces in prose and verse, which were printed in the Gloucester newspaper. Thence he was sent to Oxford, where he continued about a year, but not well satisfied, wishing of all things to see London, and become a player. At length, receiving his quarterly allowance of fifteen guineas, instead of discharging his debts, he walked out of town, hid his gown in a fruise bush, and footed it to London, where, having no friend to advise him, he fell into bad company, soon spent his guineas, found no means of being introduced among the players, grew necessitous, pawned his clothes, and wanted bread. Walking the street very hungry, and not knowing what to do with himself, a crimp's bill was put into his hand. Begin footnote. A crimp was the agent of a shipping company. Crimps were sometimes employed to decoy men into such service as is here mentioned. End of footnote. Offering immediate entertainment and encouragement to such as would bind themselves to serve in America. He went directly, signed the indenture, was put into the ship, and came over never writing a line to acquaint his friends what was become of him. He was lively, witty, good-natured, and a pleasant companion, but idle, thoughtless, and imprudent to the last degree. John the Irishman soon ran away. With the rest I began to live very agreeably, for they all respected me the more, as they found Keimer incapable of instructing them, and that from me they learned something daily. We never worked on Saturday, that being Keimer's Sabbath so I had two days for reading. 
My acquaintance with the ingenious people in the town increased. Keimer himself treated me with great civility and apparent regard, and nothing now made me uneasy but my debt to Vernon, which I was yet unable to pay, being hitherto but a poor economist. He, however, kindly made no demand of it. Our printing-house often wanted sorts, and there was no letter-founder in America. I had seen types cast at James in London, but without much attention to the matter. However, I now contrived a mould, made use of the letters we had as punch-ons, struck the matrices in lead, and thus supplied, in a pretty tolerable way, all the deficiencies. I also engraved several things on occasion. I made the ink, I was warehouseman, and everything, and in short, quite a factotum. But however serviceable I might be, I found that my services became every day of less importance, as the other hands improved in the business, and when Keimer paid my second quarter's wages, he let me know that he felt them too heavy, and thought I should make an abatement. He grew by degree less civil, put on more of the master, frequently found fault, was captious, and seemed ready for an outbreak. I went on, nevertheless, with a good deal of patience, thinking that his encumbered circumstances were partly the cause. At length a trifle snapped our connection, for the great noise happening near the courthouse, I put my head out of the window to see what was the matter. Keimer, being in the street, looked up and saw me, called out to me in a loud voice and angry tone to mind my business, adding some reproachful words that netted me the more for their publicity, all of the neighbors who were looking out on the same occasion being witness how I was treated. He came up immediately into the printing-house, continued the quarrel, high words passed on both sides. He gave me a quarter's warning. We had stipulated, expressing a wish that he had not been obliged so long a warning. I told him his wish was unnecessary, for I would leave him that instant, and so taking my hat walked out of doors, desiring Meredith, whom I saw below, to take care of some things I left, and bring them to my lodgings. Meredith came accordingly in the evening, when we talked my affair over. He had conceived great regard for me, and was very unwilling that I should leave the house while he remained in it. He dissuaded me from returning to my native country, which I began to think of. He reminded me that Keimer was in debt for all he possessed, that his creditors began to be uneasy, that he kept his shop miserably, sold often without profit for ready money, and often trusted without keeping accounts that he must therefore fail, which would make a vacancy I might profit of. I objected my want of money. He then let me know how his father had a high opinion of me, and from some discourse that had passed between them, he was sure he would advance money to set me up, if I would enter into partnership with him. My time, says he, will be out with Keimer in the spring. By that time we may have our press and types in from London. I am sensible I am no workman. If you like it, your skill in the business shall be set against the stock I furnish, and we will share the profits equally. The provision was agreeable, and I consented. His father was in town and approved of it, the more as he saw I had great influence with his son, had prevailed on him to abstain long from dram-drinking, and he hoped might break him of that wretched habit entirely. When we came to be so closely connected, I gave an inventory to the father who carried it to a merchant. The things were sent for, 
the secret was to be kept until they should arrive and in the meantime i was to get work if i could at the other printing-house but i found no vacancy there and so remained idle a few days while keimer on a prospect of being employed to print some paper money in new jersey which would require cuts in various types that i only could supply and apprehending bradford might engage me and get the job from him sent me a very civil message that old friends should not part for a few words the effect of sudden passion and wishing me to return meredith persuaded me to comply as it would give more opportunity for his improvement under my daily instruction so i returned and we went on more smoothly than for some time before the new jersey job was obtained i contrived a copper-plate press for it the first that had been seen in the country i cut several ornaments and checks for the bills we went together to burlington where i executed the whole to satisfaction and he received so large a sum for the work as to be enabled thereby to keep his head much longer above water at burlington i made an acquaintance with many principal people of the province several of them had been appointed by the assembly's committee to attend the press and take care that no more bills were printed than the law directed they were therefore by turns constantly with us and generally he who attended brought with him a friend or two for company my mind having been much more improved by reading than keimer's i supposed it was for that reason my conversation seemed to be more valued they had me to their houses introduced me to their friends and showed me much civility while he though the master was a little neglected in truth he was an odd fish ignorant of the common life fond of rudely opposing received opinions slovenly to extreme dirtiness enthusiastic in some points of religion and a little knavish withal we continued there near three months and by the time i could reckon among my acquired friends judge allen samuel bushtill the secretary of the province isaac pearson joseph cooper and several of the smiths members of the assembly and isaac de the surveyor-general the latter was a shrewd sagacious old man who told me that he began for himself when young by wheeling clay for brickmakers learned to write after he was of age carried the chain for surveyors who taught him surveying and he now by his industry acquired a good estate and says he i foresee that you will soon work this man out of his business and make a fortune in it at philadelphia he had not then the least intimation of my intention to set up there or anywhere these friends were afterwards of great use to me as i occasionally was to some of them they all continued their regard for me as long as they lived before i enter upon my public appearance in business it may be well to let you know the then state of my mind with regard to my principles and morals that you may see how far those influenced the future events of my life my parents had early given me religious impressions and brought me through my childhood piously in the dissenting way but i was scarce fifteen when after doubting by turns of several points as i found them disputed in the different books i read i began to doubt of revelation itself some books against deism fell into my hands they were said to be the substance of sermons preached by boyle's lectures it happened that they wrought an effect on me quite contrary to what was intended by them for the arguments of the deists which were quoted to be refuted appeared to me much stronger than the refutations in short i soon became a thorough deist 
my arguments perverted some others particularly collins and ralph but each of them having afterwards wronged me greatly without the least compunction and recollecting keith's conduct toward me who was another freethinker and my own towards vernon and miss reed which at times gave me great trouble i began to suspect that this doctrine though it might be true was not very useful my london pamphlet which had for its motto these lines of dryden whatever is is right though a blind man sees but a part o the chain the nearest link his eyes not carried to the equal beam that poses all above and from the attributes of god his infinite wisdom goodness and power concluded that nothing could possibly be wrong in the world and that vice and virtue were empty distinctions no such things existed appeared now not so clever a performance as i once thought it and i doubted whether some error had not insinuated itself unperceived into my argument so as to inflict all that follows as is common in metaphysical reasonings i grew convinced that truth sincerity integrity in dealings between man and man were of the utmost importance to the felicity of life and i formed written resolutions which still remain in my journal-book to practise them ever while i lived revelation had indeed no weight with me as such but i entertained an opinion that though certain actions might not be bad because they were forbidden by it or good because it commanded them yet probably these actions might be forbidden because they were bad for us or commanded because they were beneficial to us in their own natures all the circumstances of things being considered and this persuasion with the kind hand of providence or some other guardian angel or accidental favourable circumstances and situations or all together preserved me through this dangerous time of youth and the hazardous situations i was sometimes in among strangers remote from the eye and advance of my father without my wilful gross immorality or injustice that might have been expected from my want of religion i say wilfully because the instances i have mentioned had something of necessity in them from my youth inexperience and the naivety of others i had therefore a tolerable character to begin the world with i valued it properly and determined to perceive it we had not been long returned to philadelphia before the new types arrived from london we settled with keimer and left him by his consent before he heard of it we found a house to hire near the market and took it to lessen the rent which was then but twenty-four pounds a year though i have since known it to let for seventy we took in thomas godfrey a glazier and his family who were to pay a considerable part of it to us and we board with them we had scarce opened our letters and put our press in order before george house an acquaintance of mine brought a countryman to us whom he had met in the street inquiring for a printer all our cash was now expended in the variety of particulars we had been obliged to procure and this countryman's five shillings being our first fruits and coming so seasonably gave me more pleasure than any crown i have ever since earned and the gratitude i felt toward house has made me often more ready than perhaps i should otherwise have been to assist young beginners there are croakers in every country always boding its ruin such a one then lived in philadelphia a person of note an elderly man 
with a wise look and a very grave manner of speaking. His name was Samuel Mickle. This gentleman, a stranger to me, stopped one day at my door, and asked me if I was the young man who had lately opened a new printing-house. Being answered in the affirmative, he said he was sorry for me, because it was an expensive undertaking, and the expense would be lost, for Philadelphia was a sinking place, the people already half bankrupt or near being so, all appearances to the contrary, such as new buildings and the rise of rents, being to his certain knowledge fallacious, for they were in fact among the things that would soon ruin us, and he gave me a detail of misfortunes now existing, or that were soon to exist, that he left me half melancholy. Had I known him before I engaged in this business, probably I should never have done it. This man continued to live in this decaying place, and to declaim in the same strain, refusing for many years to buy a house there, because all was going to destruction and at last I had the pleasure of seeing him give five times as much for one as he might have bought it for when he first began his croaking. I should have mentioned before that in the autumn of the preceding year I had formed most of my ingenious acquaintance into a club of mutual improvement, which was called the Junto. We met on Friday evenings. The rules that I drew up required that every member, in his turn, should produce one or more queries on any point of morals, politics, or natural philosophy, to be discussed by the company, and once in three months produce and read an essay of his own writing, on any subject he pleased. Our debates were to be under the direction of a president, and to be conducted in the sincere spirit of inquiry after truth, without fondness for dispute or desire of victory, and to prevent warmth, all expressions of positiveness in opinions, or direct contradictions, were after some time made contraband, and prohibited under small pecuniary penalties. The first members were Joseph Brinthnall, a copier of deeds for the Scrivener, a good-natured, friendly, middle-aged man, a great lover of poetry, reading all he could meet with, and writing some that was tolerable, very ingenious in many of the little nicknaves and of sensible conversation. Thomas Godfrey, a self-taught mathematician, great in his way, and afterwards inventor of what is now called Hadley's Quadrant. But he knew little out of his way, and was not a pleasing companion, as like most great mathematicians I have met with, he expected universal precision in everything said, or was forever denying or distinguishing upon trifles, to the disturbance of all conversation. He soon left us. Nicholas Skull, a surveyor, afterwards surveyor-general, who loved books and sometimes made a few verse. William Parson bred a shoemaker, but, loving reader, had acquired a considerable share of mathematics, which he first studied with a view to astrology, that he afterwards laughed at it. He also became surveyor-general. William Moggridge, a joiner, a most exquisite mechanic, and a solid, sensible man. Hugh Meredith, Stephen Potts, and George Webb, I have characterized before. Robert Grace, a young gentleman of some fortune, generous, lively, and witty, a lover of punning and of his friends, and William Coleman, then a merchant's clerk about my age, who had the coolest, clearest head and best heart, and the exactest morals of almost any man I ever met with. He became afterwards a merchant of great note, and one of our provincial judges. Our friendship continued without interruption to his death. 
upwards of forty years, and the club continued almost as long, and was the best school of philosophy, morality, and politics that then existed in the province, for our queries, which were read the week preceding their discussions, put us upon reading with attention upon the several subjects that we might speak more to the purpose, and there, too, we acquired better habits of conversation, everything being studied in our rules, which might prevent our distinguishing each other. From hence the long continuance of the club I shall have frequent occasion to speak further of hereafter. But by giving this account of it here is to show something of the interest I had, every one of these exerting themselves in recommending business to us. Barenthal particularly procured us from the Quakers the printing forty sheets of their history, the rest being to be done by Keimer, and upon this we worked exceedingly hard, for the price was low. It was a folio pro patria size in pica with long printer notes. I composed of it a sheet a day, and Meredith worked it off at press, and it was often eleven at night and sometimes later before I had finished my distribution for the next day's work. For the little jobs sent in by our other friends now and then put us back, but so determined I was to continue doing a sheet a day of the folio that one night, when having imposed my forms, I thought my day's work over. One of them by accident was broken, and two pages reduced to pie. I immediately distributed and composited all over again before i went to bed and this industry visible to our neighbours began to give us character and credit particularly i was told that mention being made of the new printing office at the merchants every night club the general opinion was that it must fail there being already two printers in the place keimer and bradford but dr baird whom you and i saw many years after at his native place St. Andrews in Scotland, gave a contrary opinion. For the industry of that Franklin, says he, is superior to anything I ever saw of the kind. I see him still at work when I go home from club, and he is at work again before his neighbors are out of bed. This struck the rest, and we soon had offers from one of them to supply us with stationery. But as yet we did not choose to engage in shop business. I mention this industry the more particularly and the more freely, though it seems to be talking in my own praise, but those of my posterity who shall read it may know the use of that virtue when they see its effects in my favor throughout this relation. George Webb, who had found a female friend that lent him wherewith to purchase his time of Keimer, now came to offer himself as a journeyman to us. We could not then employ him, but I foolishly let him know as a secret that I soon intended to begin a newspaper, and might then have work for him. My hopes of success, as I told him, were founded on this, that the then only newspaper, printed by Bradford, was a paltry thing, wretchedly managed, no way entertaining, and yet was profitable to him. I therefore thought a good paper would scarcely fail of good encouragement. I requested Webb not to mention it, but he told it to Keimer, who immediately, to be beforehand with me, published proposals for printing one himself, on which Webb was to be employed. I resented this, and to counteract them, as I could not yet begin our paper, I wrote several pieces of entertainment 
for Bradford's paper under the title of The Busybody, which Brentnall continued some months. But this means the attention of the public was fixed on that paper, and Keimer's proposals, which we burlesque and ridiculed, were disregarded. He began his paper, however, and after carrying it on three-quarters of a year, with at most only ninety subscribers, he offered it to me for a trifle, and I, having been ready some time to go on with it, took it in hand directly, and it proved in a few years extremely profitable to me. I perceive that I am apt to speak in the singular number, though our partnership still continued. The reason may be that, in fact, the whole management of the business lay upon me. Meredith was no compositor, a poor pressman, and seldom sober. My friends lamented my connection with him, but I was to make the best of it. Our first papers made a quite different appearance from any before in the province, a better type and better printed, but some spirited remarks of my writing on the dispute then going on between Governor Burnett and the Massachusetts Assembly struck the principal people, occasioned the paper and the manager of it to be talked of, and in a few weeks brought them all to be our subscribers. The example was followed by many, and our number went on growing continually. This was one of the first good effects of my having learnt a little scribble. Another was that the leading men, seeing a newspaper now in the hands of one who could also handle a pen, thought it convenient to oblige and encourage me. Bradford still printed the votes and laws and other public business. He had printed an address of the house to the governor in a coarse, blundering manner. We reprinted it elegantly and correct and sent out to every member. They were sensible to the difference. It strengthened the hands of our friends in the house, and they voted us their printers for the year ensuing. Among my friends in the house, I must not forget Mr. Hamilton, before mentioned, who was then returned from England, and had a seat in it. He interested himself for me strongly in that instance, as he did in many others afterwards, continuing his patronage until his death. Mr. Vernon about this time put me in mind of the debt I owed him, but did not press me. I wrote him an ingenious letter of acknowledgment, craved his forbearance little longer, which he allowed me, and as soon as I was able, I paid the principal with interest, and many thanks, so that erratum was in some degree corrected. But now another difficulty came upon me, which I had never the least reason to expect. Mr. Meredith's father, who was to have paid for our printing-house, according to the expectations given me, was able to advance only one hundred pounds currency, which had been paid, and a hundred more was due to the merchant, who grew impatient, and sued us all. We gave bail, but saw that, if the money could not be raised in time, the suit must soon come to judgment and execution, and our hopeful prospects must with us be ruined, as the press and letters must be sold for payment, perhaps at half price. In this distress, two true friends, whose kindness I have never forgotten, nor ever shall forget while I can remember anything, came to me separately, unknown to each other, and without any application from me, offering each of them to advance me all the money that should be necessary to enable me to take the whole business upon myself, if that should be practicable. But they did not like my continuing the partnership with Meredith, who, as they said, was often seen drunk in the streets, and playing at low games in alehouses, much to our discredit. 
These two friends were William Coleman and Robert Grace. I told them I could not propose a separation, while any prospect remained of the Merediths fulfilling their part of our agreement, because I thought myself under great obligation to them for what they had done, and would do if they could. But if they finally failed in their performance and our partnership must be dissolved, I should then think myself at liberty to accept the assistance of my friends. Thus the matter rested for some time, when I said to my partner, Perhaps your father is dissatisfied at the part you have undertaken in this affair of ours, and is unwilling to advance for you and me what he would for you alone. If that is the case, tell me, and I will resign the whole to you and go about my business. No, said he, my father has really been disappointed, and is really unable, and I am unwilling to distress him further. I see this is a business. I am not fit for it. I was bred a farmer, and it was a folly in me to come to town and put myself at thirty years of age an apprentice to learn a new trade. Many of our Welch people are going to settle in North Carolina, where land is cheap. I am inclined to go with them and follow my old employment. But you may find friends to assist you. If you will take the debts of the company upon you, return to my father the hundred pounds he has advanced, pay my little personal debts, and give me thirty pounds and a new saddle, I will relinquish the partnership and leave the whole in your hands. I agreed to this proposal. It was drawn up in writing, signed and sealed immediately. I gave him what he demanded, and he went soon after to Carolina, from which he sent me next year two long letters, containing the best account that had been given of that country, the climate, the soil, husbandry, etc., for in those matters he was very judicious. I printed them in the papers, and they gave great satisfaction to the public. As soon as he was gone, I recurred to my two friends, and because I would not give an unkind preference to either, I took half of what each had offered and I wanted of one, and half of the other, paid off the company's debts, and went on with the business in my own name advertising that the partnership was dissolved. I think it was in or about the year 1729. End of chapter 7